One area of agreement in deeply divided Washington these days is the need to rethink America's policies towards China. Those policies have long tolerated Chinese human rights abuses, unfair trade practices, and theft of intellectual property on the grounds that the Chinese market was too large to try to isolate. And that engagement would surely lead to better behavior. Instead, China is rapidly becoming a superpower, rivaling the U.S. on the world stage, and at the same time maintaining its dictatorship. To talk about the future of U.S. policy toward China, we have Michael Beckley on this episode of CQ Future. Professor Beckley is a political scientist at Tufts University and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, the center-right think tank. He foresees increasing conflict and advocates an aggressive response. Welcome, Professor Beckley. Thanks for joining our show. Thanks so much for having me. So your 2018 book um, was titled Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower. And I was curious, do you think that's still the case? As the U.S., you know, we've struggled this year through this pandemic and China has long emerged from it. Yeah, I think the the overall trends still hold. I understand a lot of people think China has emerged relatively unscathed from COVID. I, I actually don't really buy that because I know Chinese statistics and I know how easily and how often they're doctored. And so I would assume the COVID cases, as well as the economic damage, is a lot worse than what the Chinese government's reporting. And one of my colleagues at AEI, Derek Scissors, has done a ton of research to basically back up those claims. But I think more broadly, you know, the, the balance of power is not going to shift just because of, of COVID. And while I think China certainly is extremely powerful, it's clearly the second most powerful country in the world. If you look at just the, the key metrics of what makes a country a superpower, China still lags pretty far behind the United States. Um, you know, it ha- the United States has three to four times China's wealth, five to 10 times its military capabilities, depending on which type of capabilities you're talking about. And the U.S. has dozens of allies, whereas China's only ally is uh, North Korea. You know, the U.S. dollar is very much the global reserve currency. It's used in 90% of international financial transactions. China's is only used in 2%. And then if you look at things like soft power, you know, of course, America's soft power has taken a beating recently, but most people in most countries still favor the United States over China. So with gaps this big in money and military muscle and alliances and partnerships, you can't really consider China a superpower in the same league as the United States, at least not yet. Right. During the Trump years, I mean, you say we we took a beating in soft power. A lot of people were very concerned about pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade deal that was we were on the verge of reaching, because they said that would allow China to strengthen its hand in the region. Um, President Trump very clearly, very explicitly, uh, was pulling back from international alliances do you think China is gaining on us? Did they gain on us in the last four years? You know, I think we handed China a, an opportunity on a silver platter, and they basically dropped the ball. <laughs> uh, they they seem to have gone out of their way to antagonize pretty much all of their major neighbors and potential partners. So anti-China sentiment, and this is according to both internal leaked internal Chinese documents as well as broader surveys by uh, research groups like Pew. Um, show that anti-China sentiment globally hasn't been this high since the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. And, you know, a lot of this is, of course, coming out of COVID and people blaming China for COVID, but also China's reaction 
where they've kind of gone all the offensive with a so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, threatening to cut countries off from critical medical supplies if they don't tow the Chinese line. And then, of course, doing all of the things that has really been going on for the past decade, if not longer, with um, you know, whether it's militarizing features in the South China Sea, reabsorbing Hong Kong, pressuring Taiwan, stirring up trouble with India on their shared border. So China really has has had a much more aggressive and assertive foreign policy. And in a lot of ways, China sort of catalyzing its own containment. You see so many countries now turning either to their neighbors to try to balance against China or even looking for U.S. support. So while I agree the United States shot itself in the foot, I think China also did and didn't really seize this opportunity to win hearts and minds that it probably could have. You recently wrote a paper that competition with China could could really heat up in the next decade and, in fact, could lead to war. Uh, paint me a scenario where that happens. Yeah, so I think um, the reason why I think the next five to ten years could be a period of maximum danger is that China has entered a really perilous period in the life of a rising power. So it's acquired a tremendous amount of capability to disrupt various aspects of the international order. I think especially the military balance with Taiwan has been shifting in China's favor. But at the same time, I think Chinese leaders are looking ahead and they see a worsening economic picture with slowing growth and then this demographic crisis that's going to hit them. And they also see the anti-China sentiment spreading around them and countries starting to build up their own militaries and sign economic deals that are essentially excluding China. And so the worry is that China's leaders will say, well, hey, we have this window of opportunity to accomplish all the big aims that we want to accomplish, to make China whole again, to do something like take Taiwan back. And we don't have infinite time. We actually need to make these things happen sooner rather than later. I actually think that explains a fair amount of the reason why China has been, say, ramping up pressure over Taiwan with the most provocative display of force we've seen in the last 25, 30 years. So I think the scenario for war that worries me is, in fact, the Taiwan contingency, because Xi Jinping has made clear that he wants to see reunification happen under his watch. Essentially, the Chinese people feel very strongly that they want to take back Taiwan. And they see this military balance that right now looks pretty favorable for them, but maybe further down the line with all the action on Capitol Hill about the U.S. strengthening its commitment to Taiwan, um, selling it more arms, and the U.S. also reestablishing its military deterrent in East Asia, I think China says, well, maybe this is now is the time to strike if we ever going to. I don't think war is is likely, but it's just it's become more likely than I'm frankly comfortable with. Um, and so that's why I just worry about the next five to 10 years for U.S.-China relations. It's kind of like in the early Cold War, where you had really big flashpoints and almost brought us to major catastrophe and major war. And then things sort of settled into a period of detente later on. So I could see something similar happening with the U.S.-China relationship, where the next five to 10 years are going to be, it's going to be pretty torrid. And then hopefully we can settle into, um, you know, it'll still be a competitive relationship, but it doesn't have to necessarily be, um, you know, nail-biting kind of complex scenarios. We've long guaranteed Taiwan security. A war with China could be catastrophic. Should we, should we maintain that policy of guaranteeing Taiwan security at all costs? Or should there be limits to it? Yeah, so I think, you know, the current policy is not to guarantee Taiwan security at all costs. It's, uh, you know, it's strategically ambiguous, right? So the United States, it's U.S. law that the U.S. has to help Taiwan acquire the articles it may need to help defend itself. But what the United States would actually do if China attacked Taiwan is left sort of ambiguous. Now, there's a lot of people, especially on Capitol Hill, saying we need to change that. We need an unambiguous Taiwan policy. 
Uh, I, I, I don't know how, you know, I, I could see arguments on both sides in terms of standing U.S. policy. What I do think needs to happen is the U.S. needs to rapidly improve its deterrence in East Asia and especially over the Taiwan Strait, because right now the United States military is very vulnerable. We only have 200, we only have two air bases uh, within 500 miles of Taiwan. So if China were to take those out, we'd be operating from Guam, you know, 1800 miles away from Taiwan and be having to sail ships in from hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles away. So that could be a recipe for disaster. So I think making a commitment to Taiwan is important um, because, you know, it is that unsinkable aircraft carrier off of China's coast. It's also the world's only Chinese democracy. And so there's ideological reasons we should support Taiwan, as well as technological reasons. Taiwan is a leader in um, producing semiconductors and other high technology equipment. So for a variety of reasons, I think the U.S. has a strong interest in protecting Taiwan. It doesn't have to be unambiguous, but the deterrent that is backing up whatever U.S. commitment is there has to be solid. And right now, I worry it's not very solid. Talk about that a little bit more. What's the danger if we were to allow China to take over Taiwan? Well, I think, first of all, it uh, you know, right now, preparations for a Taiwan contingency probably consume a third or so of China's entire military modernization. So if they're able to take Taiwan, not only will they have this new unsinkable aircraft carrier to project power out into the Western Pacific, use it as a staging location for putting blo- you know, blockades or putting pressure on, say, the Philippines or Japan, but it also just allows China to redeploy assets that it currently has to keep trained on Taiwan further afield. And so it's kind of the initial uh, breakout point within the first island chain for China to start imposing itself on the rest of the region. I think in addition, it also takes the heat off the Chinese Communist Party from a legitimacy perspective. Because right now, the fact that you have this prosperous, democratic, alternative Chinese government sitting there in Taiwan, of course, is, is, a, huge, uh, is, is a huge problem for the CCP. It can make them look bad. They have to worry that their own people will get certain ideas that they want government in the same way. And so again, you're freeing up the Chinese Communist Party to uh, to go and and push its its weight around in in other areas and in other regions. So I think for a variety of reasons, a lot of people call it the cork in the bottle, and I think there's a lot of truth behind that. Is it worth a potential nuclear conflict? I, well, I think the key, you know, here's where the argument is: well, if you abandon Taiwan, will that make nuclear war less likely further on? Because obviously, nobody wants a nuclear war, and China, at the end of the day, cares a lot more about Taiwan than the United States does. But I think the idea is you can, one, sometimes you have to be more aggressive in the short term in order to prevent further destabilizing spirals of hostility later on. Anyone thinks that China is going to stop at Taiwan, I think hasn't been paying attention to Chinese foreign policy, hasn't been reading Chinese foreign policy documents, or frankly, just what Xi Jinping has been saying about his goals ultimately for China as a great power. So my worry is that uh, if you just completely abandon Taiwan, that's a green light. And while I think it's it's easy to make loose, you know, appeasement style analogies to the 1930s, you don't necessarily need to go there. But I do think there's a fair amount of truth that it'll embolden China and that will make further conflicts even more likely further down the line. What would be next on their list? Well, I think the South China Sea would be the obvious uh, point because, you know, so 80 percent of their oil and so much of international trade goes through there. They claim it essentially as Chinese territory. And if they were able to impose themselves on the South China Sea, that would make China the hegemon of East Asia it would essentially confine China's neighbors to narrow bands of coastline um, around it, and China would be able to call the shots. I think also Japan would suddenly become 
the next target, you know, because for historical reasons, you know, to write past wrongs of the Japanese brutality against China, as well as for just geopolitical reasons. These are two extremely powerful countries packed together in a small space. And if Taiwan falls, then that provides a staging location to start putting more pressure on Japan. It doesn't necessarily mean war is going to break out, but that conflict that is still raging in the East China Sea, I would expect that to heat up in a post-Taiwan takeover um, world. So both to the north and to the south, you would see the Chinese Navy moving out if it's no longer bottled up with the Taiwan contingency. Okay, we have a new president. What should Joe Biden do to defuse this potential aggression? I, I used to be a, a quite a dove on in, when it came to China policy for a lot of the reasons that you've insinuated with your questions. Is it really worth risking a nuclear conflict just to get tough with China? But now I think China has clearly shown that it is intent on expanding throughout East Asia. And I think in the short term, reinforcing deterrence in East Asia is the priority. I think what the Biden administration is going to do is try to multilateralize the Trump policy. So they're going to maintain a hard line with China. They're going to continue to invest in a lot of the same military capabilities, um, also invest technologically and domestically to renew the U.S. economy. But I think the key there is also adding on allied cooperation, doing it in a more multilateral sense, because that's the huge advantage that the United States has um, over, over China, whose only ally is North Korea. So I, I, I think it's going to be a lot more of the same, just more multilateral from the Biden team. Our policy has long been to engage China, thinking that that would bring them into the world community, uh, increase freedom in that country. Should that still be a goal to pursue freedom and human rights for China? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, you obviously want some balance in in policy. And I think um, an article that uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, wrote with Kurt Campbell, um, I think it was a couple of years ago in Foreign Affairs, where their phrase was competition without catastrophe. So you want to do things like reinforce the military deterrent. You want to press China on its human rights abuses, which by all accounts are getting much worse every single year. But at the same time, you want to look for points of common interest. And there are clearly lots of common interests between the two countries, whether it's on climate change or limiting nuclear proliferation or just shoring up the global economy. So there's plenty of common ground there. And certainly you should be open to engagement. But my worry is that you don't want the Biden team to necessarily take their foot off the gas pedal when it comes to reinforcing deterrence and the kind of economic measures we need to protect our technology and to protect our secrets, just to maybe cut a deal on on climate change. I think first we need to shore up the deterrence and then negotiate from a position of strength. Frankly, that's what the Jake Sullivan and Kurt Campbell articles seem to suggest they wanted to do, but it remains to be seen. You know, it's a lot harder to actually put that into practice. So I think that's going to be a key point to look for in the early days of the administration. We brought China into the world trading community, and they're our biggest trading partner. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. But President Trump pushed back against that. Should Joe Biden continue in that vein? I, I Frankly, I hope not. So I'm a card-carrying liberal internationalist, and I think the United States benefits tremendously from being able to forge uh, international, whether it's trade and investment deals. I think maybe they need to be done in a different way because now we're much more aware of the costs that certain communities within the United States have borne from, um, from various trade agreements. But the idea that the United States should just erect a wall and adopt an America-first policy would be, of course, totally short-sighted and uh, overturn 70-plus you know, years of... Uh, U.S. grand strategy. So I think, you know, a lot of people now rip on engagement and say it was this horribly misguided policy. I think it was the right policy at the time, because what other choice was there other than to just 
you know, now that the Cold War is over, we're just going to go and try to fight a Cold War with China. It didn't make any sense. So you at least wanted to try to encourage China to become a responsible stakeholder in the liberal international system. Of course, there's a lot of money to be made with all the trade and, and uh, investment that went back and forth between the two countries. So I can totally understand the logic of why policymakers pursued engagement. But I think most, at least most folks in DC have come around to the idea that, hey, you know, China has found ways to kind of exploit that that system. And if we continue down that route, they're just going to get more and more powerful. Um, and it's going to be to our detriment in the long run. So now we need an adjustment in US policy, it probably needs to be more competitive, at least for a while, just so that we can get back to square one. Talk about that, though, about that element of it. I mean, if they're stealing our intellectual property, if they are engaging in unfair trade practices, if they are acting aggressively on the world stage, what can we do beyond containing them and continuing to engage them? How can, in other words, how can we punish them? How can we inflict some pain to let them know that there are consequences? Yeah, so I think the the initial steps, um, the United States has already put a number of restrictions. Um, so again, I'm, I'm all in favor of liberal internationalism, but I think in the short term, you might actually need some aggressive unilateralism when it comes to trade and investment restrictions, at least in the short term. So the United States has already, you know, CFIUS, that body has already been uh, limiting Chinese investment into the U.S. That's the government agency that uh, monitors foreign investment in the United States. Thank you. Um, and <laughs> But on the, on the outbounds, st- we still don't really have that great of export controls. It's still relatively easy for, um, you know, multinational companies to cut deals with China to trade certain pieces of technology, again, for market access. Um, there's also not really great restrictions on outbound investment from the United States to China. And so a lot of American money is still being used directly to, to finance, uh, China's repression, um, especially in a place like Xinjiang, as well as state owned enterprises that are involved, um, in, in, um, uh, China's expansion in the South China Sea. So I think there's things the U.S. could do in the short term to try to plug some of those holes. So that's not as easy for China to get technology and get investment into um, areas that are clearly being used for repressive and aggressive purposes. I think longer term, though, you're going to have to win over allies and partners um, in various areas. And here, I think a lot of our existing infrastructure, like our alliances or something like the UN, is just too slow and ponderous and, and is not going to really get the job done. The United States, I think, in the short term, is going to have to rely on sort of coalitions of the willing ad hoc groups, whether it's a, so, you know, people are talking about a T12 where you get these top democratic technological country, uh, high tech countries to get together and try to create new regulations for technology or, or a D10 where you get the world's 10, you know, top democracies together to find ways to coordinate to protect their, their elections and their democrat and their, their free press from, from Chinese political warfare. Um, there's talk of, you know, all this reconstitution of the quad with the United States and Australia and Japan and India to kind of provide some, uh, multilateralism for maritime security. So I think it's going to be these, this kind of alphabet soup of, of coalitions of the willing that are going to have to uh, find multilateral mechanisms for shoring up what we used to call the liberal order, just because I think the old institutions, um, either China in the, in the case of the UN has, has um, you know, has just become so, become so powerful within certain agencies there that they can block policies or, or, or skew policy in, in their favor. Or um, in a case like U.S. alliances, it's just hard to manage. Like you know, South Korea and Japan just don't get along, right? So it's hard to have a true multilateral mechanism to enforce the rules of the road. Um, and so I think we're going to have to use these coalitions of the willing. 
Is the dream dead of bringing China into the world of democracies? I was never that convinced that China would democratize just because with an authoritarian country, a, a Leninist system that's set up, there's just no real strong incentive for the top leader to democratize. It would just be too politically risky to open up. I mean, I think the Ch Chinese leaders after Tiananmen came to the conclusion that the biggest threat to their rule was a split within the elite where, you know, before Tiananmen, you had reformers who were saying, hey, maybe we should start to liberalize certain things. And you had the hardline communists. And that split then opened up space for a crisis to emerge. So I think the lesson they learned was, you know, we either hang together or we, we have to stick together or we hang separately. And so in that kind of system, which is then based on a big patronage system with state-owned enterprises and local party bosses all getting a cut, it's just really hard for anyone to loosen up either, to, uh, especially politically. And Xi Jinping has shown that he's clearly moving in the direction of centralization. So I was never that, I never thought that there would be much of a chance of China moving towards some kind of Jeffersonian demo democratic system. And certainly now that dream, you know, if it ever existed, is at the very best on hold, if not permanently dead. Yeah, let's look ahead 10 years. I mean, what's your best guess at where the U.S.-China relationship stands after this dangerous period is over? I mean, my, my hope is that, you know, I, I actually think it's going to get pretty nasty. It already is pretty nasty, but it could get even worse if there's a crisis over Taiwan or there's something that goes on in the South China Sea. Um, so my what I if I had to guess is for the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a series of, of crises, um, potentially military crises. But the hope is that kind of like in the Cold War, you know, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, both sides realized, hey, we're getting way too close to the brink. Um, we have a lot of common interests, the most basic being just peace, because um, no one wants a, a World War III over, um, you know, something like Taiwan. And so then they established confidence building measures, arms control, um, you know, in the US-China case, it could be a series of economic agreements, um, you know, going down, there's, there's common ground that could be forged. But my worry is we're gonna have to pass through a pretty, um, pretty turbulent period to get there. And that the best case scenario is just sort of low level continued competition, but not the kind of like high intensity, crisis prone competition that I think we're headed for in the next few years. What's your assessment of what you hear from President Joe Biden? The Biden team seems very much aware of all of these issues. I mean, they've been writing about it extensively as, as scholars when they've been out of government. And I think they, they're going in with a clear idea because a lot of them also are coming from the Obama administration, which in its last couple of years, of course, kicked off the rebalance to Asia and clearly had grown sort of exasperated with Xi Jinping. I think when Xi first came to power, the Obama team felt you know they should give him a chance. Some people even thought he might be a reformer, but it became pretty clear early on that he was a nationalist, that he was an authoritarian and was going to try to centralize as much power as possible. Um, and that, you know, whether it's anything from, you know, a, a cyber agreement to a series of economic agreements, that China was going to look for ways to just, you know, try to serve its national interests as much as possible. And so they adjusted their strategy. And now I think that they're going back in, um, you know, four years later, they have, they've become even more convinced of that. I mean, I've never seen the the zeitgeist on a major foreign policy issue shift as quickly as the U.S.-China relationship has, and just the talk about the U.S.-China relationship in D.C. and that's bipartisan. I mean, it's one of the few bipartisan issues there actually are in in Washington is getting tough with China, and I think a lot of it is a smart response to a China that has changed tremendously. I think over the last five to ten years, I mean, especially under Xi Jinping. Professor, thanks for coming on our show. Thanks so much for having me. 
That's all for this episode of CQ Future. I'm Sean Zeller. You can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com or your favorite podcast app. Thank you.